0: This morning we'll be looking at verses 7 through 18. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 6. Today we will finish the chapter, or maybe I should say, Lord willing, we'll will finish the chapter. Would you give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, beginning in Revelation Chapter 17, verse 7, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. By being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us, sustaining it so that we might even hear it this morning. And though we understand the words, we confess that we need wisdom, that we need your help, O God, that by your Spirit you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things, that by your Spirit you might teach us and train us, rebuke us, even correct us for righteousness' sake, make us more like Jesus. Help us to live for you, O God. Be with your people. Lord, be with me, your servant. Would you help me and protect me from error? And O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. You, O God, are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you are familiar with a man who is named Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford. Rutherford was a Scottish minister who lived in the 17th century. That's the 1600s. He's most noted for his participation in the Westminster Assembly, which produced our own church's confession of faith and catechisms. He's also known for his many published and widely read letters. They're called the letters of Samuel Rutherford. But perhaps his most notable work is the one that got him in the most trouble. It was a treatise called Lex Rex. Lex Rex. And it was subtitled The Law and the Prince. This book was popular during the period of Oliver Cromwell's commonwealth Because it attacked royal absolutism, and it put due emphasis on the covenant and the rule of divine and natural law. Even so, it was wholly rejected upon the restoration of the British monarchy, and a little bit of a history lesson here, that is when King Charles II returned to England in 1660, And among other things, he restored the bishops to the parliament, and he established himself once again to be the head of the church. So subsequent to this restoration, copies of Lex Rex were publicly burned throughout all the kingdom, and you can only imagine how much the king's fury burned against Samuel Rutherford. He's living in exile later in life, and he's suffering from a terminal illness. And he was finally cited, or you might say subpoenaed, to appear before parliament to answer the charge of treason. He was deemed treasonous, and he must die. With a hopeful faith and a deep dependence on God's absolute sovereignty, Rutherford refused he refused to appear and he wrote back saying, I've got a summons already, a summons before a superior judge and judicatory, and I behoove to answer to that first summons, excuse me, summons, and ere your day arrive, I will be where few kings and great folks get to come. Well, Rutherford did indeed answer that first summons first. He died. He died before the charge against him could be tried, even if by force. Might be a new story to you, but it's kind of familiar, isn't it? Stories like this one abound. They abound in the history of God's people, faithful saints from all periods of time and All kinds of corners of the globe have found themselves at odds, odds with tyrannical governments and evil regimes, symbolized in our passage here and throughout the book of Revelation as Satan's first beast, the one who you may remember attacked the two witnesses in chapter 11, the two witnesses representing the church the one who rose out of the sea to do the same thing, to attack the church back in chapter 13. And of course, you remember that we saw this beast again last week in chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, this time carrying upon it the great prostitute, Babylon the Great, the one who symbolizes those worldly systems employed by the beast and those systems that are meant to seduce people away from God's truth and to lead them to worship the dragon, to worship Satan. Babylon the Great is a living picture of the spiritual harlotry of a culture that is turned away from God. And just as the dragon and his two beasts form a counterfeit trinity set against the triune God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so the great prostitute forms a counterfeit bride, a false church set against the truth and the beauty and the righteousness of Christ's body, the church. We talked about that last week. You might remember the great prostitute is seductive and the world, along with the people of God, all of us, are vulnerable to her, vulnerable to her allure and to her promises of wealth and of freedom and of satisfaction and of pleasure. People see her in the beast upon which she rides and what do they do? They marvel. They marvel. Is this not what the Apostle John also did? Look again at the end of verse 6. When I saw her, he did what? I marveled greatly. But knowing our weakness, knowing our feeble faith that is open to her seduction. God loves us enough to break our trance and speak truth to us, to help us, just like he did Samuel Rutherford and so many others, to help us persevere in our faith, even in the face of great evil, maybe even great evil that looks really great to our senses. And this speaking of truth is exactly what's happening in verses 8 through 17. It's like a a warning issued to protect consumers from buying a product that promises to be safe, but it's actually destructive. So God here, he's addressing the mystery of the woman and of the beast, exposing their counterfeit nature again, as I think you'll see from the text, pointing out three specific ways in which they are absolute frauds. They are absolute frauds. So it's my aim this morning to help us see these three ways and to find ourselves comforted and encouraged. Comforted and encouraged to do what? To continue standing up Jesus, no matter, no matter how hard things get and no matter how evil the things that we face might be. So if you're taking notes, we'll begin with our first thing, the beast's fraudulent resurrection. And this comes from verse eight, the beast's fraudulent resurrection. Resurrection. Look at how the beast is described in verse eight. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. So note the pattern. Was and is not and is about to rise. This pattern actually follows the record of Satan in history. Satan was and then was not. He reigned over the world in sin until when? He was defeated on the cross by Jesus, the son of God who came to overthrow the kingdom of Satan and to establish his own kingdom on the earth. In John's day and even in our own, Satan can be considered as is not. Now this doesn't mean that he's not active In our own time. That would be against the teachings of scripture. But what it does mean. And we'll see this more fully as we continue on. It means that his power has been restrained. He is limited. He's limited. So that the gospel. May go out in power. To all nations. And though his reign was. And now is not. We must see that there will be a brief time at the end of history when he will once more be permitted to deceive the nations, is one phrase. To gather them for battle against Jesus Christ. That's another phrase. And you'll just turn your eyes to chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. You'll see that. He'll be let loose from his chain for a time. And he will deceive the nations and gather them for battle against Jesus. So therefore, we note that the record of Satan in history does follow this pattern. He was and is not and is about to rise. Well, just as the beast symbolizes Satan's world powers, so we see this exact same pattern followed by various kingdoms and nations throughout history, right? There was Pharaoh of Egypt, Sennacherib of Assyria, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and so many others right up to the time of John and the reign of Emperor Domitian over Rome at that time. And throughout history from then, even to our own day, we have found this beast doing what? Rising, reigning, and then resigning to defeat over and over and over again, as various, and we don't need to name them all, but various tyrants and despots and well meaning malcontents have assumed power and done what? Persecute the people of God over and over and over again. This is the pattern. You must know that it will happen over and over and over again. How's that for good news? It is good news when it's put into right perspective. But the beast will continue to rise over and over and over again until Christ does come in glory on that last and great and final day. You see, the reason that this is an absolute fraud is, I hope, absolutely clear. You see, this counterfeit resurrection stands in clear opposition to the real and true resurrection of Christ, the one who says, Look back in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. How does Jesus describe himself? Look back there with me. Jesus says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. See, as the eternal one, Jesus lives and he reigns forever. Not in cycles of defeat, but in the perpetuity of eternity. And while he marches toward the realization for us, as he marches toward that realization of his everlasting dominion at the end of the age, this beast has in store the opposite. What does he rise to? Is it glory? It's destruction. Destruction. As Martin Luther penned in that great hymn, for lo his doom is. Is sure. It's not in doubt. It is sure. And listen, many will marvel at the beast. Many do marvel at the beast. Those who are not predestined in Christ, the the ones whose the text tells us names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. These will bow their knee. To his multitude of manifestations of evil throughout history. And as they do, as they worship the beast, thus worshiping Satan, they are worshiping a counterfeit Christ. They are celebrating a fraudulent resurrection. Apart from God's gracious and saving intervention. It's not altogether surprising to see how this happens, is it? Satan's beast is powerful. The governments, the tyrannical and despotic governments of this world, they offer much and they supply much of what we need in this world. In some measure, at least for a moment, the beast supplies safety and freedom But such power, such sovereignty is also a counterfeit. And that brings us to our second point this morning the beast's fraudulent sovereignty. The beast's fraudulent sovereignty. And I have to admit right up front that verses 9 through 14 are quite possibly some of the hardest verses to interpret in all of the book of Revelation, let alone all of the Bible even those like me who insist on an interpretation that upholds divine truth, portrayed in apocalyptic symbolism, even folks like me can find ourselves playing along, playing along with the code breakers and the future casters and all those things that are so popular in our day. But as I have to remind myself as I study and prepare to preach, I can't get distracted by that. There's a lot there that might distract us from the main purpose. I'd love to share with you some of the things I've learned going through it, but we don't have time for that. And here's the other thing. We not only have to realize we don't have enough time for that, but we also must confess our limited understanding. We are finite creatures, right? There's only so much we can understand, which notice... That's exactly what the angel tells John in verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. This calls for a mind with wisdom. When we need wisdom, where do we go? We ask God for wisdom. But I don't want to leave it as that. So let's ask the question, how then can we understand this symbolism of verses nine through 14. Again, picture book, not a puzzle book. How do we understand the symbolism, the truth behind the symbolism? First, I wanna remind you of how the numbers seven and 10 have been used in Revelation. We've encountered them before. And each time we've seen that they're used to speak of completeness and fullness, So while we see a phrase like seven mountains or seven hills in verse 9, we can see that and go, well, wait, that's actually a real reference to a real place. That's a reference to Rome. If you said, I'm going to the seven-hilled city back in the day, everyone knew you were going to Rome. Just like today. If you said, hey, I'm going to the windy city, where are you going? Chicago. Hey, just got back from the Big Apple. Where were you? New York. New York seven-hilled city was just another way of saying rome as that is true the following references to seven kings and then 10 horns are not so easily identified exegetical gymnasts who take a purely historical approach argue that they actually argue and i think it's are blue in the face over which emperors? What seven emperors of Rome are these seven kings? And you should see the charts and how they argue. Well, that guy only served for three months, and he was only six months. so We don't want to include them, and it's tiring. But on the other side, other exegetical gymnasts who take the futurist approach, they also argue over which ten nations are going to make up the new world order. I was thinking back in the 90s when I was in school, there were nine countries, right, in the European Commonwealth. And it was like, when that 10th one joins, just know that's going to be it. It's going to trigger chapter 17 and 18. Well, now there's like 20-something, so I-, I don't know. These are the kinds of things that we can get really wrapped up in here, and it's okay to get wrapped up in that. It really is. It's okay for you to study those things. I encourage that. But don't miss the overall principles of this book. It's for all of God's people. All of God's people for all of church history, okay? It's for all of God's people. It's a picture book, not a puzzle book. And it also shows us what God is doing between the ascension of Jesus and his return. So I think when we do so much, and I'm guilty of it too, but when we do so much exegetical gymnastics, we miss the big picture, the symbolic picture. That these seven kings and these ten horns, this fullness of rule and reign over the world represent the fullness then of the beast's tyrannical and oppressive power over all the nations set up against God, whether it be, and yes, it includes the Roman Empire, or whether it's some coming empire that we don't even know is happening yet. The point is clear. The beast hates Christ. The beast hates Christ's kingdom. And until Christ returns, he will war against them with all his might. Even as restrained as he might be, he still fights. He still fights. To strengthen my argument there, I want to point out the second thing. The second thing that we need to know to help us understand verses 9 through 14 symbolically. Thankfully, this was pointed out to me by a teacher. I often overlooked it. Did you notice the number 8? Did you notice the number 8 here? Look again in verse 11. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an 8th, but it belongs to the 7. And it goes... Destruction. Eight has been called symbolically the number of resurrection. It's the surprising beginning of what was once thought to be complete. When you think something's complete and done, you're surprised when something else happens related to it. Okay, It's the number of resurrection. Seeing the number this way helps us understand that the beast is an eighth king, not only because... The eighth king is, look how the eighth king is described, the one that was and is not, and it goes to destruction. We've heard that already, but also because what is the beast attempting to do, and we've been making this case all along, is that the beast is attempting to masquerade as Jesus Christ. The beast is a counterfeit Christ. Just as earlier in the book, he had seven heads and one was mortally wounded, but yet he still was able to continue to live. And people marveled at it, just like they marvel at the mortal wound of Jesus Christ. But yet he was brought back from the dead. He he rose again, right? And now he lives forever, reigning over us and ruling over us. The beast is a counterfeit Christ. And because he's a counterfeit, his sovereignty is counterfeit as well. It's fraudulent. I put this word picture in here because it seems to happen to me more than other people. It's like asking to see the manager of a store to lodge a complaint, only to be presented with yet another non-manager. Did that happen to anybody else? I just want to talk to someone in charge. And they'll go and get someone. That person's not in charge. Well, I want to talk to the person in charge. It's a cycle. So the beast and his minions, his earthly minions, repeatedly press their authority and their rule over nations and people. And how do they act? How do they act as they do this? That authority's mine. It comes from me. It comes from me. It is mine. Mine alone. Is that true? I would ask you, biblically, is that true? No. All authority comes from God, who is sovereign over all things. Just as nations throughout history have risen and fallen, so too will the nation of the beast do so. When he is one day, yes, unleashed from the bottomless pit, unleashed with his facade of sovereignty, unleashed to be joined by all the worldly powers and authorities that live then, unleashed, as verse 14 says, look what it says, to do what? To make war. To make war on the Lamb. And what is going to be the result of that war? What will come Of the beast's counterfeit sovereignty. He's going to be absolutely pulverized. It will be wiped out when he is finally and fully conquered by the Lamb, by the one described in verse 14 as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. We're going to get some really clear pictures. Of this final day. And they'll be a little unsettling. We might even say that's not the Jesus I remember seeing in pictures. But God is very serious about the punishment and the destruction of the beast. And so if you want to read ahead, just read the end of chapter 19. We'll get there. But that's what's coming. Wiping out so that all that is left is righteousness in the new heavens and the new earth. So far this morning, we've seen the beast's fraudulent resurrection and his fraudulent sovereignty. And now we're going to look at verses 15 through 18. This is where the angel turns John's attention and our attention once again back to the great prostitute. This time to emphasize fraudulent satisfaction. The fraudulent satisfaction promised by her, that's our third and final point this morning. The satisfaction that's offered by the great prostitute is best described, as many commentators have said before me, self-destructive. Having seen her in verse 9 You've seen her sitting on the seven mountains and then you understand from verse two that she is the one who makes all the kings of this world drunk with her immorality and her impurity. What we see now is the universal scope of her seduction in verse 15. It has reached, look, peoples and multitudes and nations and languages Verse 18 says she even has dominion over the kings of the earth. You see, her seduction and corruption spread fast. It spreads faster and more pervasively than any virus or bacteria or anything else when we think of things spreading quickly. Her seduction spreads so fast. If she represents, as we made the case last week, that if she represents a counterfeit church, then we could say that her membership is unmatched. Her membership is unmatched. But notice that if the true Christ is absolutely and unwaveringly committed to his bride, and if you're here this morning, I hope you know that, Jesus is absolutely and unwaveringly committed to you, the true church, then we should not be surprised at all to see how incompletely and faithlessly committed the beast is to his great prostitute when even she is unable to sway the ones who are faithful to Jesus, and when even she is unable to fully satisfy the insatiable appetites of the rulers of this world, what will happen to her? What will the beast do to her? Look again at verse 16. And the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. You see, when the unquenchable drive for satisfaction is not met by her, she is only left used, abused, and discarded, just like every other person who gives in to her seduction and bows the knee to the beast. Expendable. You have to ask, why? Why is their hunger and thirst and drive never satisfied by her? She can't. She can't truly satisfy. But there's another reason. Because God is at work. Because God has ordained the beast and all of the followers; of these ordained them for this purpose. That's what the text says. Just as He has ordained wicked rulers for all of history, God hardens hearts and He uses them to carry out His purpose. And this is in line with everything that we've already seen in the book of Revelation. Remember back to the early chapters, chapter 4 and following? What was in God's hand? Remember? There was something in God's hand, and it was a scroll. And we made the argument that that scroll was all of history, right, is in that scroll. Everything that will happen in history was already written there, unchangeable. And no one was found anywhere who was worthy to open that scroll, except who? Jesus, the lion and the lamb. He was the one worthy to open that scroll. That scroll had all of God's eternal decrees for all of history. And the picture we were to see there is that God indeed does accomplish all that he sets out to do. God alone is absolutely sovereign. Thus, only God is able to satisfy. Because our appetite is more than just what promises us satisfaction and wealth and freedom and all that. What is our deepest longing and hunger? God. God is our deepest longing and hunger. Only God can satisfy that. The satisfaction we find in him through the only one worthy to open the scroll, that satisfaction is not counterfeit. It is the only food and drink that will ever truly satisfy your soul. And if you have yet to drink of that, may today be the day that you do. Turn from the beast, turn from the prostitute, and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and be saved this day. I mentioned Samuel Rutherford at the beginning. I want to point now to one of his most famous quotes and it goes like this. When I am in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. Spoken like a true 17th century Scotsman there. When I am in the cellar of affliction, I look for the Lord's choicest wines. The book of Revelation opened with Jesus addressing his church. And if you remember from those seven letters, it was a a church in the midst of all types of afflictions. And throughout his letters to these churches, which also are letters to us today, he constantly called his followers, his true bride, to persevere. That was the the nail he kept hitting. Persevere. Stand strong against the attacks of the dragon and his beasts. Cling to me. I'm the only one who was truly resurrected, Jesus says. I'm the only one who is truly sovereign. I'm the only one who can truly satisfy you. And those are letters for us today. It's a call for you and I today. No one in this room can deny the reality of affliction. No one in this room can deny the tempting seduction that surrounds us as the way of this world awakens a a constant longing in our souls. And we feel like we're always at competition with our affections. And none of us can deny that but for the grace of God, but for his grace made evident in his electing and justifying and sanctifying and glorifying love, but for that grace... As I said last week, we're all but a heartbeat away. All of us are but a heartbeat away from turning to the prostitute and the beast. But for the grace of God, go I. So I'm thankful that even in the midst of afflictions, he's still offering us his choicest wines. He's given us his very self, He's given us Jesus. He's made our very hearts his home. He's tabernacled within us by his Holy Spirit. And because we belong to him, if you belong to Christ, you belong to him, you can give yourselves this description that's found at the end of verse 14. What might be the best definition of a Christian? Look what it says. The ones who are with him are called what? They're called and chosen and faithful. Called and chosen and faithful. Make no mistake. You're not that on your own. I'm not that on my own. But we're only these things because the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings is with us. and We are with him because he's for us. And he purchased us. By his own blood. So, brothers and sisters, you're facing all kinds of things today and in the days to come. And some of you are really anxious about what's coming down the road and what might happen to us. And I share that with you. I understand. It's easy to look around and we see the forces of of evil just mounting their offensive, right? Cannot wait to wage another war to continue to fight against the church, to fight within and without, right? And what are we trying to do? We're just striving, right? We're striving by God's grace and his strength to resist the counterfeit attraction, uh, excuse me, the counterfeit satisfaction that we're attracted to in this world. We're striving to not bow the knee to the beast while being faithful to Christ. My call for you this morning is don't do that on your own. Don't try to do it on your own. You are incapable of doing that on your own. Only by Jesus and his grace can you do that. Only by looking around and seeing the brothers and sisters to whom God has called you to be in fellowship with. We're in this together. We're in this together. We fight as the Lord's army, as his people, we stand up. We stand up for Jesus. Samuel Rutherford also once said If your Lord calls you to suffering, don't be dismayed, for he will most assuredly provide a deeper portion of Christ in that suffering. To know suffering is to know Christ in his suffering. a privilege and a joy to suffer for the sake of Christ, because he is truly our all in all. Amen and amen.